this is the More Than Right Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve Lopez. In case you've been living under a rock since early 2022, America is fighting a proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. Bipartisan Washington tells us that fight is for what the swamp calls democracy. And we've been hearing that word thrown around a lot lately, especially since the mostly peaceful Capitol Hill protest of January 6, 2021. All opposition to the stolen presidential election of 2020 is seen as a threat to that so-called democracy, the one that spied on the 2016 presidential campaign of Donald Trump, the one that launched a bogus counter-espionage investigation of him based on the lie he spied for Russia. The same democracy President Biden is fond of saying can easily counter your Second Amendment right to bear arms with high-tech ordnance dropped from advanced U.S. government warplanes. In March of 2022, the great Ukrainian Democrat, President Vladimir Zelensky, invoked martial law and nationalized Ukraine's television stations. This government-controlled information consortium is called United News. The move, said Zelensky, was meant to stamp out what Democrats and the media say is still a problem here in America. Russian disinformation. He also suspended 11 political parties, he says, are, what else, pro-Russian. More recently, Zelensky announced the suspension of elections until hostilities with Russia end. As the fact-checking website Snopes notes, quote, the Ukrainian constitution prohibits holding elections during periods of martial law, unquote. While we're on the subject of war and elections, the United States has never suspended elections during time of war, whether world war or civil war. And speaking of America's civil war, when talk of suspending U.S. elections until the Southern Rebellion was quashed, President Abraham Lincoln said, quote, We cannot have free government without elections, and if the rebellion could force us to forego or postpone a national election, it might fairly claim to have already conquered and ruined us, unquote. Unlike Ukraine, the U.S. Constitution has no provision for such a suspension. It took the COVID-19 pandemic to subvert American elections through the use of emergency powers that allowed the expansion of unverifiable, fraud-prone mail-in voting. It proved the next best thing to a Ukrainian-style declaration of martial law. And like Zelensky, President Joe Biden's regime has targeted its political enemies, from pro-life Christians parents concerned by transgender ideology forced down their children's throats, and the legal hounding of Biden's certain GOP opponent for 2024, President Donald J. Trump. Like Zelensky's Ukraine, Biden's Washington criminalizes political opposition in the name of saving democracy, a move both regimes use to promote one-party rule. Even the New York Times finally acknowledges that our banana republic has a two-tiered justice system, which bent over backwards not to prosecute the influence-peddling, bribe-taking, tax-evading, handgun-toting Hunter Biden to the fullest extent of the law. Meanwhile, the same cannot be said for Trump, 
Getting back to Hunter's favorite cash cow, Ukraine, it has never been the flower of Western democracy, the White House, a bipartisan cabal in Congress, and their media propagandists would have us believe. Since the dark days of the Second World War, Ukraine has had a serious fascist problem. During the Second World War, Ukraine's pro-Nazi militias helped Germany systematically murder nearly one million Jews as Ukraine's own contribution to Hitler's Holocaust. And when Russia first invaded the Crimea to aid pro-Russian rebels in 2014, Ukraine's fascist militias quickly formed in response, most notably the Azov Battalion, also called the Special Operations Detachment. Back then, the U.S. media was quick to notice the strong fascist strain among this Ukrainian militia. A 2015 USA Today article states, quote, a volunteer brigade with self-proclaimed Nazis fighting alongside government troops against Russian-backed separatists is proving to be a mixed blessing to the cause. Though the 900-member Azov Brigade adds needed manpower to repulse the rebels, members who say they are Nazis are sparking controversy. And complaints of abuse against civilians have turned some residents against them, unquote. The article adds that an Azov battalion member named Alex owned up to his Nazi sympathies. Quote, he admitted he is a Nazi and said with a laugh that no more than half of his comrades are fellow Nazis. He said he supports strong leadership for Ukraine, like Germany, during World War II. Unquote. Then in 2018, Congress inserted in its $1.3 trillion omnibus spending bill a provision preventing the U.S. from shipping weapons to Ukraine's neo-Nazi militias. But fear of Ukraine's neo-Nazis faded in February of 2022. That's when an estimated 190,000 Russian troops invaded Ukraine. Soon thereafter, the media claimed Ukraine's Nazis were gone and posed no threat. Forbes magazine's David Axe assured us that all was quiet on Ukraine's fascist front. Quote, the narrative the Kremlin advances to justify its brutal war on the Ukrainian people, that Ukraine is a far-right Nazi regime bent on destroying Russia, is a lie. Yes, there really are far-right elements in Ukrainian society, but it's unfair to describe Ukrainian military units, even those that originally formed within fringe groups, as right-wing. Kiev deliberately has de-radicalized these units, unquote. So, has the Azov Battalion been denazified by sainted Ukrainian President Zelensky? The Anti-Defamation League thinks so. The ADL says the Ukrainian government, quote, investigated the group and claims to have expelled it of those far-right members. Of course, this is not to say that they have successfully removed all far-right elements from their ranks, but our center of extremism also does not see Azov regime as the far-right group it once was, unquote. The ADL is clearly taking Ukraine's, quote, claims, unquote, as fact. Polish journalist Konstanty Gebert quit his nation's leading newspaper when editors insisted he describe the Azov Battalion as far-right rather than neo-Nazi. If we cannot come to an agreement on the essentials, Gebert wrote in his last column, we will have to part ways. 
Poland, serves as a conduit for U.S. weapons shipments to Ukraine. Three days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Max Blumenthal of Adara Press wrote, quote, Last November, an American military inspection team visited the Azov Battalion on the front lines of the Ukrainian Civil War to discuss logistics and deepening cooperation. Images of the encounter show American Army officers poring over maps with their Ukrainian counterparts, palling around and ignoring the Nazi-inspired wolf-fangled patches emblazoned on their sleeves. The images highlighted a burgeoning relationship that has been largely conducted in secret, but whose disturbing details are slowly emerging, unquote. But Blumenthal adds, quote, Just as heavy weapons ostensibly intended for the CIA-backed Free Syrian Army went straight into the hands of Salafi jihadi insurgent forces, including ISIS, American weapons in Ukraine are flowing directly to the extremists of Azov. And once again, in its single-minded determination to turn up the heat on Russia, Washington seems willing to ignore the unsettling political orientation of its frontline proxies. Unquote. So let's recap. Ukrainian President Zelensky has suspended elections in his country. He has arrested political opponents. His government nationalized the nation's TV news media in the name of curtailing Russian disinformation. The U.S. Pentagon is not only arming neo-Nazi elements now part of Ukraine's military, it is contemplating escalating the Ukrainian crisis by sending Zelensky U.S. F-16 fighter jets. And Russian President Vladimir Putin has responded by moving tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus. Putin described the move as, quote, an element of deterrence so that all those who are thinking about inflicting a strategic defeat on us are not oblivious to this circumstance, unquote. Like past U.S. interventions, Ukraine is starting to look a lot like a political and military quagmire. And least we forget, all of this was predicated on the noble claim we are defending Ukrainian democracy which today, Ukraine clearly is not. So, can someone please explain why the U.S. is propping up a corrupt East European kleptocratic tin-pot dictator to the tune of billions in U.S. tax dollars while simultaneously risking nuclear war? All the climate change doom and gloom talk sounds a lot like a comic book storyline. The entire world is under threat from a civilization-killing monster, and there is little time remaining to defeat the beast. Mere mortals incapable of saving themselves turn to a superhero capable of leaping tall buildings in a single bound and possessing the power to turn back the clock to a more environmentally sustainable time. But these superheroes don't wear capes or fly under their own power. They take private jets and limousines to attend climate conferences in some of Europe's finest cities, where the food is always top-notch. 
The attendees then tell us we must give up fossil fuels and the gas vehicles powered by them. They demand we drive expensive electric cars that our fossil fuel-powered electric plants don't have the capacity to handle. Governments enacting these elitist energy policies intentionally drive up fuel costs, which drives up the costs of all goods and services, which makes all but the richest of these elitists much, much poorer. The superheroes in this scenario sound more like elitist authoritarian killjoys than benevolent protectors. And the government of Norway seems to have figured this out. Recently, Norway approved 19 oil and gas projects worth about $19 billion. Norway's energy minister said the fossil fuels provided by the projects would create jobs and provide the power necessary to support inefficient wind, hydrogen, and carbon capture projects. He then let the cat out of the bag. Quote, the projects are also an important contribution to Europe's energy security, unquote. In other words, it looks like Norway wants to be the supplier of last resort to the energy-starved, economically deprived, and climate change-obsessed nations of Europe. And Norway has replaced Russia as Europe's chief energy supplier. The environmental fanatics at Greenpeace say Norway's granting new oil and gas leases violates human rights and Norway's constitution. And so, they've filed suit. But a similar lawsuit filed by another Greenpeace affiliate in early 2020 was dismissed. The judge in that case ruled it was, quote, uncertain that commercial discoveries of oil and gas would be made, unquote. In other words, Norwegian environmentalists can't file lawsuits against hypothetical or imagined comic book villains supposedly threatening Earth. And so, a Norwegian court found in favor of Europe's real superheroes, Norway's energy producers. This threatens to upend the entire climate change project in Europe. Norway's energy producers will become the continent's weapon against rising energy prices and help to slow declines in European living standards. And remember, Norway is held up as a model of democratic socialism in America. What explains collectivist Norway's pushback against the globalist push for climate change policies? According to the Journal of Psychological Science, Kameen Iom of the University of California at Santa Barbara finds, quote, individual concern is more strongly associated with motivation to act in countries that espouse individualistic values, while social norms may be a stronger motivator in collectivist societies, unquote. In other words, countries like America, whose populations cherish individualism, are more likely to see environmental issues as dependent on them than in socialist societies. The study comes to a chilling conclusion. Quote, Our research suggests that scientists, policymakers, and activists need to understand how culture shapes the psychological antecedents of action to develop policies, campaigns, and interventions that address important social issues, unquote. In other words, governments and environmental activists need to understand how to psychologically manipulate their populations into accepting draconian climate change policies that will limit their ability to travel, work, and live more than a subsistence life. 
an acceptance of a post-fossil fuel apocalypse packaged as a noble sacrifice in service to the planet. This all sounds like the ancient Aztec and Mayan civilizations, whose sophisticated understanding of astronomy and mathematics were corrupted in service to a cosmology that believed human sacrifice guaranteed the stability of the cosmos. But all the brutal bloodletting did nothing to save them, and so these civilizations are no more. In June of 2018, pagan environmental high priestess Greta Thunberg tweeted, quote, A top scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years, unquote. Well, it's five years later and we're still here. And then there's the granddaddy of today's eco-religion, biologist Paul Ehrlich. In his 1969 book, The Population Bomb, Ehrlich predicted, quote, The battle to feed all humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. At this late date, nothing can prevent a substantial increase in the world death rate, unquote. And when that failed to happen in the 1970s, this echo prophet regaled us with another prediction. Quote, in ten years, all important animal life in the sea will be extinct. Large areas of coastline will have to be evacuated because of the stench of dead fish, unquote. The 1980s came and went, and people are still paying premium prices to live by the beach. I also forgot to mention... In his book, The Population Bomb, Dr. Ehrlich said drastic measures were needed to curtail the world's population. He suggested the U.S. government push for the implementation of a forced sterilization regime then in the planning stages in India. The U.S., he wrote, should give, quote, logistic support in the form of helicopters, vehicles, and surgical instruments. We should have sent doctors to aid in the program by setting up centers for training paramedical personnel to do vasectomies. Coercion? Perhaps, but coercion in a good cause, unquote. How did it go, you ask? According to a 2014 BBC article, quote, During the 1975 emergency, when civil liberties were suspended, Sanjay Gandhi, son of former Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, began what was described by many as a gruesome campaign to sterilize poor men. There were reports of police cordoning off villages and virtually dragging the men to surgery. An astonishing 6.2 million Indian men were sterilized in just a year, which was 15 times the number of people sterilized by the Nazis. 2,000 men died from botched operations, unquote. Did you notice that to save the planet... India needed to suspend civil liberties to implement this horrific evil? India's dead were examples of human sacrifices made to appease the environmental gods. In a 2003 speech before the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco, Jurassic Park author Michael Crichton said of this new paganism, quote, Environmentalism seems to be the religion of choice for urban atheists. Why do I say it's a religion? Well, just look at the beliefs. If you look carefully, 
you see that environmentalism is, in fact, a perfect 21st century remapping of traditional Judeo-Christian beliefs and myths. There's an initial Eden, a paradise, a stage of grace and unity with nature. There's a fall from grace into a state of pollution as a result of eating from the tree of knowledge, and, as a result of our actions, there is a judgment day coming for us all. We are all energy sinners doomed to die, unless we seek salvation, which is now called sustainability. Sustainability is salvation in the church of the environment. Just as organic food is its communion, that pesticide-free wafer that the right people with the right beliefs imbibe, unquote. Crichton saved his best for last. Quote, Am I exaggerating to make a point? I'm afraid not, because we know a lot about the world than we did 40 or 50 years ago, and what we know now is not so supportive of certain core environmental myths, yet the myths do not die, unquote. Governments around the world are about to sacrifice human lives on the altar of climate change, but like Dr. Paul Ehrlich, they'll blithely dismiss any and all criticism by saying their atrocities were committed in a good cause. That concludes this edition of the More Than Right podcast. If you feel so inclined, please like and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, this is Steve Lopez.